Today I want to talk to you about the stones. And if you're from my generation, when you hear that name, the stones, you probably think of that famous rock and roll band, the Rolling Stones. You know, the Rolling Stones have been touring the globe for nearly half a century now. But have you noticed? These guys are getting pretty old. I mean, these are some ancient rock and rollers. This July, Mick Jagger turned 67 years old. 67! Time is no longer on his side. (laughs) But this got me thinking. Maybe the Stones need to rewrite some of their song titles to make their music more relevant, you know, to the aging band members. I've been on vacation, had a little time on my hands, and so... Here are the top 10 suggestions for Rolling Stone rewrites. Here's some songs for the senior Rolling Stones. You remember that song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction? How about this? I Can't Get No Circulation. Let's Spend the Night Together becomes Let's Take a Nap Together. It's only rock and roll, but I like it. How about it's only Geritol, but I like it. I want to be your man becomes, I want your health care plan. Like a rolling stone, like a kidney stone. Give me shelter. Give me a tax shelter. Here's my favorite. Brown sugar. Remember that song, Brown Sugar? How about Brown Splenda? Jumping Jack Flash becomes Limping Jack Flash. Hot stuff. She's hot stuff. How about hot flash? And here's my favorite. Here's the number one song suggestion rewrite. You can't always get what you want. You remember that? You can't always get what you want. Now becomes you can't always chew what you want. Well, excuse the diversion this morning, but but That's not the stones that I want to talk about today. I'd like to discuss with you the living stones, not the rolling stones. You know, the living stones are also a rock and roll band. We're a band of people that have been founded on the rock. We're always on a roll. We've been grouped together to make beautiful music to God. In fact, Jesus calls us, Peter calls us here, a temple of praise. You know, the Rolling Stones can't get no satisfaction, but nothing is more satisfying than being a living stone. For Jesus has made you and me and all true Christians living stones. And we'll be making beautiful music together for a lot longer than 50 years. The Living Stones tour goes on for all eternity. You and I are a part of a temple of praise to God. Well, we start our study this morning in chapter 2, verse 4, with simple yet profound words. Peter writes, coming to him. And this is what being a Christian is all about. We're coming to Jesus. A Christian is a person who has new headquarters. He's out and about in the world, but he comes home to Jesus. He interacts with the world. Then he comes home to Jesus. He even does battle with the world. But then he comes home. He rushes home to Jesus A Christian is always coming home, coming to Him. A Christian is a person with a new access point. 
our lives now spin around Jesus. He has become our true north. All we are, all we have, where we're headed revolves around Jesus. Coming to Jesus is now our way of life. And, and Peter, he makes three observations about Jesus that sort of set the pace for this new life. He calls him a living stone, a cornerstone, and a stumbling stone. You'll see in the next few verses. Notice first he notes, coming to him as to a living stone. Now throughout the Bible, the Messiah is referred to as a rock or even as a mountain. Jesus is strong. He's steady. He's unbreakable. He's like a rock. Jesus is the bedrock of the truth. He's a refuge from the storm. He's a fortress that can withstand the enemy. In fact, he is even a missile sent from heaven that shatters the kingdoms of this world. Jesus is Stone Mountain tough. You been to Stone Mountain lately? Jesus is deep and he's large and he's granite-like. Oh, he rises above the horizon. He's a vantage point, a reference point for you and me. But he's also a durable foundation. Jesus is a rock. And yet, have you noticed, it's kind of hard to warm up or cuddle up to a rock, isn't it? That's why Peter calls Jesus a living stone. Oh, yes, he's tough, but he's tender. And he looms large, but he loves deeply. You could say Jesus is a warm-blooded rock. With Jesus, you're never between a rock and a hard place. For Jesus is a soft spot in this hard, cold world. Only by coming to Jesus do you find peace and rest. Jesus is a living stone, but Peter tells us more about him. The Christ, he says, was rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Now there's a legend that's associated with Solomon's temple, the Old Testament temple. During its construction, the cornerstone was quarried first. But when it arrived on site, the builders, they didn't recognize its strategic importance. It was different from the other stones. The builders thought it was an oddity, and so they rolled it aside until the cornerstone was needed. That's when the builders realized their mistake. They raced to retrieve the precious stone that they had previously rejected. And this illustrates how the builders of Judaism treated Jesus. They didn't realize when he came to them that he was the chief cornerstone. He was the fulcrum on which everything that God would build would rest. You see, Jesus was so different from them and from what they expected. They rejected God's cornerstone and they tossed him out of their temple. But what the Jews rejected is still precious and valuable to God. And one day soon, a day still future, They'll realize their mistake. The Jews will repent of their sin. They too will come to Jesus. And they'll receive him as God's chosen. Oh, Jesus is a living stone. But notice in verse 5, it takes it a step further. He says, you also as living stones. Jesus is the living stone, but we also are living stones. I guess you could say we're just sort of chips off the old block. We take after Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone, but you and me are little stones. We're alive with the life of Christ. 
He breathes and He loves and He moves and He cares through us. And His Holy Spirit makes us strong. In Christ, we're rock solid. Like Jesus, we're living stones. And Peter says that these stones are being built up into a spiritual house. What's another name for a spiritual house? A temple. That's right. God is into temple building. You know, Atlanta's construction industry may have hit the skids, but God is still building. He's turning you and me and every believer into a temple of praise to Him. The Old Testament temple was a tangible building that stood there in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. But the New Testament temple is a spiritual house made up of living stones. You and I are being joined together as a house for God. This church is not the building. It's the people. We're the building material. We're the stones that are being assembled on site. God is fitting us together as a house for Him. Oh, the transforming power of Jesus. It sobers us. You know, some of you have gone from being stoned to being stones. Faith in Jesus has made us spiritually alive. You know, the Jewish temple had limestone walls. Jesus is building a temple with live stone walls. Each of us has a place in his church. This is why I say, don't be off the wall. Be on the wall. Find your place. Here's your opportunity to join the band. In Christ, you're a living stone. And you have a role in this spiritual temple God intends to construct. Now, as I mentioned, this analogy of being living stones in the temple of God, it reminds us of the construction of Solomon's temple. The Bible tells us that the stones in the Old Testament temple were actually quarried off-site. If you go to Jerusalem with us, you can go to the quarry. It's just north of the city walls. The stones were cut and chiseled and then fitted at the quarry so they could be easily assembled on site. 1 Kings 6 verse 7 reads, The temple, when it was being built, was built with stone finished at the quarry so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. You see, the temple was to be a place of peace and serenity and worship. Not your typical construction site. I mean, God didn't want the halls of the temple to be filled with the noise of banging and sawing. And so he had the stones sized and chiseled and shaped and fitted together at the quarry. Once the stones were custom fitted, then they were delivered to the temple mount and assembled according to plan. You and I are like those ancient stones. And the work of making us fit and then fitting us together is what God is doing in the world today. Here is what we need to remember. The world we live in is the quarry. You see, heaven is the temple. And the temple is the place of peace and serenity and reverence and worship. There are no construction noises in heaven. You never hear any banging and drilling and sawing. That happens in this life. You see, when you get banged around, and when you get drilled on, and when you get chiseled away, and when you get chopped off, and when you get whittled down to size, and it happens to us daily, that's the stuff that's supposed to be happening in this life. We live today in the quarry. This life is a construction zone. 
Don't be surprised when your rough edges get sanded down and your ends get leveled off and your jagged exterior gets broken and shaped away. It's loud and dusty and noisy and chaotic in the quarry, but that's where the important work gets done. And this is where our cooperation is necessary. You see, the difference between living stones and limestone is that living stones have a mind of their own. They can jump up when they think the cutting gets too severe. They can run when the chiseling gets uncomfortable. We can thwart God's work by trying to escape the pick or dodging the drill. This often happens when a person changes jobs. They're just trying to escape the chiseling. Or when they leave a church. Or when they avoid a friend. God is using that particular situation to quarry you. He's carving and shaping and fitting you together. But we need to cooperate. Always remember, heaven doesn't start until we get to heaven. There was a sweet, well-meaning little girl last night who spoke at the commencement ceremony. And she tried to convince us that Athens is like heaven. I've been to Athens. You're not fooling me. If Athens is like heaven, we're going to be disappointed when we get to heaven. Athens is not like heaven. Hey, heaven doesn't start until we get to heaven. For now, God is working on us in the quarry. He's building a temple of praise by fitting us together. And only when He's done will He ship us to heaven where we'll be the temple that He'll occupy for all eternity. Peter calls us a living stone. But then he also says that we're a holy priesthood. In the Old Testament, only the tribe of Levi could serve as priest. In fact, the priesthood had a dress code. You had to have Levi jeans. That's an old joke, but you keep laughing, so I'll keep telling it. The priests were the go-betweens. They represented God to the people and the people to God. But in the New Testament, every believer has become a priest. You no longer need another human being to get to God. Jesus cut out the middleman. 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us there's one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. You no longer need a third party to get to God. You don't need an operator on the line. You don't need a server to log on to to get to God. You have your own access. You are a holy priesthood. You know, I don't think many Christians understand the revolutionary implications of this concept. For centuries, Roman Catholicism oppressed its members and dominated people's lives through the priesthood. Common people didn't dare read their Bibles because the church taught that you couldn't understand the Bible without the assistance of a priest. They made it a sin to even try. The priest told you what to think and how to live. Rather than a mediator, the priesthood became a barrier between God and His people. He barred them from the truth and from freedom and from the grace that's so freely given in Christ. Hey, more than any other doctrine, it was the priesthood of the believer that lit the fires of reformation. This is the truth that sparked Western democracy. Think about it. Think of the logic. If priest and parishioner and prince are all equal before God, if every man is his own priest, then every person should have an equal voice. And thus an equal vote. And therefore equal rights. 
an equal opportunity to worship God as he pleases. You see, the doctrine of the priesthood of every believer was the catalyst that brought civilization out of the dark ages into the light that we know now. In fact, if you love freedom, you owe a debt to Christianity. And let me champion this doctrine this morning. As Christians, we are all a holy priesthood. This means that I have no justification for trying to force my opinion or my prejudices on you, and you have no right to try to force yours on me. Oh, certainly, it's a given. We are all under the clear teaching of Scripture. But when I see prideful church leaders with inflated views of themselves pressing their opinions on people as if their words were the words of God, it upsets me. It's wrong for one Christian to claim a closer connection to God than another Christian. We are all complete in Christ Jesus and only because of Him. It's wrong to then presume that I can explain God's will to you or you can explain God's will to me apart from the Word of God. I've come to this conclusion a long time ago. I have a hard enough time trying to discern God's will for my own life than to take responsibility for telling you God's will for your life. Every believer is his own priest. It's up to you to listen to God and read his word and discern his will. And we have all the help that we need. The Bible, the Holy Spirit are both at our disposal. God is so faithful to personally interact with each one of us. Also, as a priest, we have a job to do. Peter says the duty of a priest is, quote, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The Old Testament offered animal sacrifices. The blood of bulls and goats flowed from the altar, whereas New Testament priests offer up spiritual sacrifices. Did you know as a priest, the Bible gives us five different offerings that we can present to God? Write these down. These are the sacrifices that you can make to God. You can sacrifice self, souls, stuff, song, and service. I'm going to give these to you again, but I'm going to give you a few scriptures to back them up. Romans 12 verse 1 places self on the altar. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Before you give anything else, God wants you to give to Him yourself. Your body, your mind, your soul. Go where God says go. Do what God says do. Think what and how God says think. Place yourself on the altar. Living stones are first living sacrifices. But we can also offer souls. Romans 15 verse 16. There Paul refers to the people he influenced and brought to Christ as, quote, the offering of the Gentiles. Paul says when you lead a person to Jesus... When you bring someone to Christ, that becomes an acceptable sacrifice. There's another sacrifice. In Philippians 4, verse 18, Paul is speaking of the stuff, the monetary support sent to him from the Philippians. And he calls it an acceptable sacrifice. Here's another way that you can offer a sacrifice to God. Give an offering. Take some of your stuff and stuff it in the offering box. That becomes a sacrifice to God. 
Now think about this. you got a wallet, and it's probably made out of cowhide or maybe even sheepskin. Think about this. The hard work's already been done. The animal's already been slaughtered. The sacrifice has been made. In fact, you've been stuffing money into that wallet for a long time now. Now you just need to take some of it out and stuff it in the offering box. And your stuff can be a sacrifice to God. God sees us as a spiritual sacrifice, acceptable, pleasing to Him. As a priest unto God, it's our duty to offer this kind of regular sacrifice. Hebrews 13 verse 15 also tells us that songs are a way of making sacrifice to God. The author of the Hebrews, he refers to our worship as the sacrifice of praise. Now, now here's how this works. When Marvin leads us in a song here on Sunday morning, God equates what comes out of my mouth as a sacrifice to Him. Not because my singing sounds like a bleeding lamb in the throes of death. Though it does. Actually, God has trained His ear to interpret my singing as a joyful noise. That's an incredible, that's a whole other story. But, but when I raise my hands and lift my voice and, and let my heart fill this room with praise, God knows I mean well. He knows I love Him. He knows I'm thankful. This is why praise is a sacrifice, as is service. The next verse there in Hebrews 13 tells us, Do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Notice this, something as simple as an encouraging word or a good deed. A random act of kindness to another person is seen by heaven as a sacrifice well pleasing to God. Boy, as priests, it's our job to sacrifice self and souls and stuff and songs and service to God. Peter tells us to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. But then he writes in verse 6, Therefore it is also contained in the Scripture. And now he quotes several Old Testament passages. First is Isaiah 28. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Jesus is a living stone, but he is also a cornerstone. The chief cornerstone, Peter calls it. If you visit the countryside out in England or in Europe, you'll find these old stone churches. Christians have been meeting in these churches for thousands of years. When you build one of these rock churches, you intend for it to last a long, long time. This is why it's important that you build it on a solid cornerstone. The keystone is the rock on which all the other rocks in that structure are going to lean. It's the linchpin. In fact, pull out the cornerstone and the whole structure is going to topple like a house of cards. And you see, this is what characterizes a Christian's life. For a true believer builds his or her life as Je- with Jesus as the cornerstone. That means everything in my life rests and leans on Jesus. Oh, lots of people these days, they like looking religious. And they like to sort of tip their hat to Christianity and just make Jesus another brick in their house. 
They, they just want to make him a brick, and they just want to kind of slot him into one of the walls. I mean, not much depends on him. In fact, they can ignore him when he's, it's convenient for them. They can even pull him out of his slot for a time, and nothing much in their life changes. Nothing really rests on his involvement. But you got to know, Jesus is more than a brick. He's the cornerstone. Everything in my life should revolve around Jesus. How I do work, and money, and sex, and friends, and decisions, and gender, and marriage, and parenting, and leisure. Everything in my life should be influenced and interrelated with Jesus. Guys, if he's not the cornerstone, you don't understand Jesus. And you're not enjoying the stability he brings. Perhaps this is why your finances are unraveling. And your marriage is falling apart. And your job now is in jeopardy. Peter writes, he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. As I mentioned before, life is a test. It's only a test. But your life only passes the test if it's resting on Jesus. Believe on Him. Rest everything on Jesus. Build a life on Jesus, and you won't be put to shame. Well, Peter continues. He says, therefore, to you who believe, He is precious. You know, if Jesus is just another brick in the wall, your love for Him is going to vacillate. It's going to go hot and cold. But if Jesus is your cornerstone, man, he will be precious to you. He'll be what matters most. No sacrifice will be too steep to express your love for Him. And then Peter writes in verse 7, but to those who are disobedient. And then he quotes two Psalms. First Psalm 118, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then second Psalm 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Here's Peter's point. People who disobey God will find Jesus an offense. A lot of folks today claim to love God, but a person's allegiance to God boils down to their attitude toward Jesus. Remember, the Jews rejected Jesus in the name of God, but they were tossing aside God's keystone. The early church was more opportunistic they embraced Jesus as their foundation. And still today, He is now our cornerstone. Peter goes on and he speaks of those who reject Jesus. He says, they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Did you know you have an appointment with Jesus? Did you know that one day you're going to meet Jesus face to face? Here's what some of you need to hear this morning. Jesus is the rock who won't go away. Either let Jesus be your cornerstone or He'll become your stumbling stone. Bow your knee to Him or He's going to break a few toes. Jesus is too big. He's too vital to be ignored or to be shoved aside. He is the rock in the center of your road. You've got an appointment with Him. You see, He loves you enough to keep popping up. He's the stone in your shoe that interferes with your pace. He convicts us and He chafes at us until we surrender to Him. Jesus is either your cornerstone or your stumbling stone. It's up to you. You know, the Rolling Stones, they, they might be famous. 
But the living stones, for the most part, are a different story. Think about it. When we appear alongside Jesus in all of his glory, people are going to ask, who are those guys? Why are they with Jesus? They're going to recognize Jesus for sure. But who are all the unknowns with him? Who are all the no-namers in the band? Though your friends and your family members might not recognize it now, you, my friend, are a special person. If you're in Christ, you're a very important person. And in the next two verses, Peter explains who we really are in Christ Jesus. In verse 9, he tells us, But you are a chosen generation. You know, people today, they, they often categorize other people by generation. The generation in which they were born. You're a builder, or you're a baby boomer, or you're a buster, or you're a member of Generation X, or Generation Z. None of you are millennials. They're all still in the nursery. But none of these generational titles mean anything to God. For God has but one chosen generation. And membership is not predicated on when you were born, but if you've been born again. It's not about birthday, but about new birth. You see, the group that matters to God is not builders or boomers or busters, but believers. God's chosen generation are the regenerated. You see, if God's Spirit has generated spiritual life in you, if something came alive in you when you put your faith in Jesus, you now are a member of a new generation. You, my friend, are the hope of the future. And it doesn't matter if you're nine or if you're 90. You're God's new generation. And you're supposed to challenge and freshen and shake up the status quo. That's what new generations do. They make their mark on the world, for better or for worse. And we've been called by God to leave this world a different place. We are a chosen generation. And we are also a royal priesthood. Not just a holy priesthood, but a royal one. And, and that's sort of an oxymoron if you're thinking biblically this morning. For in the Old Testament, there was no such thing as a royal priesthood. Ancient Israel observed a separation between church and state. The priests came from the tribe of Levi, whereas the kings came from the tribe of Judah. But we are a combination. We're God's royal priesthood. We're both king and priest. Last night at the big graduation ceremony, they kept saying, Doc, uh, uh, President Adams, that's the president of UGA, President Adams, President Adams this, President Adams that. I started liking the ring to that. President Adam, President Adam. So I turned to my kids and I said, guys, from now on, that, that'll do just fine. Just call me President Adams. But, but you know what? I'm more than a president. I'm a king. I'm a king in Christ. One day soon, we're going to reign and rule with Jesus. He's coming back to right all wrongs and establish his kingdom on this planet. And if you are faithful to him in this life, you're going to reign and rule with him in the life to come. That's incredible. Today, though, we're priests. We're standing in the gap between people and God. We're teaching God's word. We're representing God to man. And for me, here is the reason I get out of bed every morning. If you're looking for an incentive to fight the traffic, I mean, here it is. Everywhere you go, 
You are a divine diplomat. You represent the living Lord Jesus to dying people. You are in the position of putting the hand of man into the hand of God. That's a big deal. You're a royal priest, but that's not all. For we are also a holy nation. You know, before any of us came to Jesus, we were black and white and yellow and red. We were African and Asian and Anglo and Latino. We were such a diverse group of people. I say it often. You'd never be able to get the people in this room together without a fight breaking out if it wasn't for Jesus. We now have a commonality that's greater than all of our differences. In Christ, we have gained a new ethnic and national identity. And I take this seriously. I hope you do too. We are a holy nation. We've got a new common homeland. It's heaven. We've got a common bloodline, the blood of Jesus. We've got a common policy plank in all that we do. We want to bring glory to Jesus. So tell me, how then can we divide over trivialities? And yet shamefully we do. We polarize we get focused off of our spiritual, eternal identity, and we rally around superficial distinctions. And it grieves the heart of God. All of a sudden, we're bulldogs and yellow jackets. We're Pepsi drinkers and Coca-Cola drinkers. We're Democrats and Republicans. We're Mac users and PC users. Man, hopefully when the chips are down, you and I will remember that we have a higher calling and a stronger devotion. We are citizens of heaven. No matter what you happen to be, black or white or legal or illegal or male or female, your first allegiance is to a holy nation. And we are also God's own special people. Notice this. When Jesus saved us, He did so not just because He loves us individually, though He does, but He also has plans for us corporately. He has birthed in us a new social category. We are God's peeps. That's what we are. And He's calling in a check on us right now. I hear it somewhere. We are God's peeps. We embody His nature. We live out His values. You know, check this out. If you want to know what life is like in Cuba, you don't have to go all the way to Cuba. You can go down to Miami because there's a neighborhood in Miami known as Little Havana. And in Little Havana, there's Cubans running all over the place. They're Cuban immigrants. They look, they speak, they act, they dress just like people in Cuba. It's like a mini Cuba. And this is similar to the role that the church should play in culture. If someone wants to know what heaven is like, all they should have to do is to be able to walk into a local church. God wants us to be an outpost of heaven right here on earth. You should be able to sample heaven by walking into Calvary Chapel. Wow, the, the love they have for each other. My, how sincere their worship how concerned they are for the truth and compassion for each other, the healing, the strength, the help that I found there. It felt like heaven. This is why. This is why I believe in the church. 
This is why the church is so strategic. This is why you should believe in your church and pray for your church and give to your church and serve at your church and be at your church. Church is a big deal. This gathering every week is as close as some people are ever going to get to experiencing heaven. That's why we need to make it count. I can think of no higher ambition than for a group of people to provide their community a little taste of heaven week in and week out. We are God's own special people. And then Peter sums up the purpose of the church in verse 10. He says, That you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Check this out. We have gone from not a people to the people of God. Did you know a purebred puppy with at least three generational, a three-generation ancestry will cost you $1,500? $1,500 for a dog. That's incredible. $5 for a cat would be incredible, but $1,500 for a dog. Purebred puppy, $1,500. Whereas you can adopt a mutt at the animal shelter for just a few bucks. Some of you bleeding hearts might just want to go adopt that one. Notice this. The dog's value is determined by its pedigree. And this is what Peter is saying about us. We've gone from being spiritual mutts, spiritual mongrels, to now being spiritual purebreds. We've been born of God. We have the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from our sin. Wow, some of you never thought that you'd ever find a place that you could truly call home until now. But through Jesus, you found a home. He's now home base. You're coming to Jesus. And you've obtained mercy in Christ. Judgment was stayed off, in your case, by the mercy of God. Jesus loves you with a love you don't deserve. That's why we need to be proud of who we are in Christ. That's why we need to rejoice that we are part of a temple to the praise of God. Let me close with an old expression. Ever heard this? A rolling stone gathers no moss. A rolling stone gathers no moss. But you see, a rolling stone, that is a person with no identity, a person with no ties, to something greater than themselves, also becomes a lonely, secluded, miserable person. That's why I'm glad that I'm a living stone, not a rolling stone. And if you're alive in Christ, you too have joined the band. Welcome, my friend, to the living stones.